1: Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 21 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The bi-weekly podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Realizing that the show is finally legal to drink, but we probably shouldn't invite Tony Stark to the after-hours party. I'm Adam. And seriously, considering the superhero alter ego of
0: to poop to poop, man, based on my <laughs> current work responsibilities... I'm Michael, and I have to say, Adam, I looked at the cover of this issue. I don't know who these guys are (laughs) on the cover here. Like, it looked like like a knockoff Lobo, and I'm I'm really starting to think that Image is like in the pocket of Wizard because (laughs) there's just so much heavy Image stuff. And I was just like, I was farting around on the internet today, and I was looking up like Legends of the Dark Knight, and I'm like, there's so many great stories that came out from that book and i don't see any of them featured in any of these issues or anything and i'm like what is going on i i want to know like i want to speak to one of the people we've been interviewing and ask them like what is the deal with image like why is it such a like hot commodity i just don't
1: get it we're, we're gonna answer some of those questions today i promise you as we get into the reading at least according to wizard's research at the time they will tell the tale
0: oh fantastic because i i'm like at a, at a loss at this point
1: I need to know. <laughs> some of that information uh, could be found on a letters page so michael why don't you take us into willie lumpkin's mailbag
0: With this issue, Magic Words has moved up to the front of the magazine where it will remain until the end of its wizard publication. I didn't realize that it moved this early to the front of the magazine.
1: Well, and I think what they were going for initially, because you remember how like in comic books, the letters page is always at the end, right? So I think they were trying to mimic that, and then they realized, wait, there's a lot of good conversation here, and it is a great way, just like we do at the top of the show, which is why I put it here initially, because I was like, this is how you prime yourself for the conversation this is why people are reading the magazines they want to talk about comics or at least read about people that read comics or where the trolls
0: come out the trolls yes. <laughs> they need
1: to they're passionate about the trolls. fans michael passionate oh, yeah. fans
0: <laughs> they were waiting for their moment in the sun when twitter dropped that's what it is
1: but interestingly enough we have more than just a fan writing in we do the writer
0: of the amazing spider-man comics dave michellini writes into wizard to clarify why Whether his status as co-creator of Venom is selling him short. Dear Wizard Magazine, I want to drop you a short note, and by short, it's about a half a page long, (laughs) uh, to correct an error in your January issue. First, I'd like to thank you for making Venom number one your top pick of the issue. I hope everyone gets a kick out of the book when it hits the stands. However, I did take exception to being referred to in the article as the co-creator of Venom. I assume your writer was thinking that Todd McFarlane, the artist of Amazing Spider-Man at the time, Venom was his first appearance as the other co-creator. Todd's visualizations were fabulous. And I'm sure Venom would never have reached the heights of popularity it has if it hadn't been for its initial draw by someone of less talent or imagination. Todd's unique and intense visuals push the envelope in both dialogue and characterization and his artistic contributions to the first Venom stories can't be overemphasized. However, there was only one person who actually created Venom. And that was me. I hate to sound like I'm blowing my own horn, but after 19 years of writing comics, this is the first time I've created something that's resulted in action figures, t-shirts, and its own, unplanned at the time of creation, that is, series. So I guess I'm just a little jealous about sharing the credit. To set the record straight, Venom's earliest incarnation was actually in Web of Spider-Man number 18. Collectors take note in an epilogue sequence in which Peter Parker was pushed in front of a subway train and was spooked by the fact that whoever did, did it didn't trigger his Spidey sense. I'd planned to make the mysterious attacker female and her background was completely different from the character that would ultimately become Venom. But the basic idea was there. Someone who hated Spider-Man had joined with the alien symbiote to try and kill our hero. When I left Webb, the character had started to develop, went into limbo. Then, when Amazing Spider-Man 300 rolled around, the editor, Jim Salakrup wanted to introduce a new villain in that issue. I brought up my anti-Spider Symbiote Woman. Jim liked the concept, but thought readers might have trouble accepting a female character smashing Spider Man through walls. Feminist readers can take that up with Jim. (laughs) So I made the character male and came up with Eddie Brock's persona to fit with the new origin. The name Venom was then derived from the venomous stories the character was forced to write for sleazy tabloids. The new character's first appearance were in Amazing 298 and 299. The plots of these issues included visual descriptions of the character, were bought by the editor before a regular artist had even been assigned to the book. So there you have it. The true secret origin of Venom. Once again, I hope no one takes this as a swipe at Todd in any way, form, or manner. I had a great time working with him on Amazing, and he deserves every bit of fame and fortune that's come his way. It's just Venom sprang from a single, demented mind, my own, and I appreciate your giving me the chance
1: to clear that up. Dave
0: Michelini, Marvel Comics. Wow.
1: Now that is a loaded letter. Like for comics fans at this time, just imagine, like this really is the secret origin of Venom. You were not going to find this in the back of any of the Spider-Man comics. This was not going to be explained. I mean, maybe in an issue of Marvel Age somewhere, but it feels like, man, this is how important Wizard suddenly became. Dave Michelini says, Hey, here's a forum where I can get the word out to all the fans. I created Venom. <laughs> You know, it, it's it's
0: interesting reading that little letter or long letter, I should say. It's kind of a bummer that it's not female character.
1: It's yeah, it's interesting if they had gone that way. But then it begs the question: Would Venom have been as popular coming in as a female villainess, if you want to put it that way, for Spidey? Because when you look at his rogues gallery, does he have really a female villain that has lasted? Or who? I mean, there's the White Rabbit is the first one that comes to mind for me. I don't even know if she started in Spider-Man comics. I mean,
0: Black Cat, but she's, like, you know... Back and forth, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, she goes from being his enemy to his ally to somewhere in between, kind of, like... You know, you know, Marvel's version of Catwoman, obviously. Beyond that, I don't know how many females... I was going to say, I
1: wish we had Rob Graham here on this episode. He could tell us. So, yeah. Spidey004, reach out to us and uh, let us know about Spider-Man's rogues gallery and where the females are. Because it's, it's kind of yeah. hard to find them as far as we're concerned. But yeah, that would have been a really interesting direction to take it.
0: And also, like, a little bit ahead of its time, you know, if you think about it.
1: For sure. And there's actually even more to that story, but for those who want to dive deeper into Dave Michelini interviews online, you will be shocked by what you discover the female Venom's origin story is, because it's like, whoa, like, that. it's dark.
0: Is it a female character that we would know ahead of time?
1: No, no, no. It was a totally new creation. But there's just like this element of her backstory that's just yeah, very adult and very sad. And you're just like, oh.
0: Post that on our Instagram. I'm kind of interested, or Twitter. I'm trying to. I want to. I want to see that now. I'm very yeah. curious. That's well, we'll cool. I'll tease
1: you. You got to go to social media, everybody, to find it.
0: Oh, hey now. Yes, hit us up. Just so you know, we're also saying farewell to the Wave Riders Wayback Machine. This episode, we found that the magazine is so jam-packed with actual comics content at this point. So each month, like we're not gonna have time to cover the Wave Riders Wayback Machine, which has a sad tear in my eye. But we, you know, we have to move on. We have to grow as as a show. We just don't have the time to talk about the movies and music anymore. We maybe we'll talk about it in passing, but we don't have have a full segment on it. But If you want to know more about the 90s movie nostalgia, be sure to check out my other podcast on the Retro Network, which is Box Office 30, where my buddy Pete and I discuss all the movies that are happening 30 years ago. And actually, this month, we have a Steven Seagal classic that's going to be a real (laughs) juicy for everybody. That is our Willy Lumpkins mailbag for this month. Adam, what do you got in our table of contents?
1: Well, Michael, you're talking about the cover here. And this issue from May 1993, number 21, features cover art by Jay Lee, is that a name that rings a bell for you, Michael?
0: Yes, I know who Jay Lee is. Funny enough, believe it or not, From yes, what? Like, I
1: know who. Oh man, you put me on the spot. I don't know. <laughs> I do, I know the name, but you've heard the I've name. Seen his work. Yes, I know the name. Okay, well, here, yeah, so here's the thing. So Jay Lee is the hot new artist at Image Comics. That's the big news. He's working on a Wildcats miniseries for Jim Lee and Youngblood Strike File, which is yet another spinoff of Youngblood for Rob Liefeld, where his style is more extreme now that he's an Image, of course, than his work at marvel where he was doing namor that's where he got really famous x-men and then some issues of marvel comics presents where he actually took over for rob liefeld who had been doing a beast storyline and then jay lee stepped in there so he has a full interview in here where the actual interview title is no relation meaning he's not related to jim lee he's not related to stan lee he's just jay lee but he explains that his dark and distorted style and it's very evident from this cover image it says it comes from his soul but with influence by Simon Bisley and Bill Sienkiewicz. So (laughs) it's like, also, I'm inspired by those guys, but it's coming from my soul. He says, quote, it's true. My stuff has gotten a little too dark, perhaps so much so that you can't tell what's going on. Uh, Some of that has to do with the fact that I have to do this stuff really, really fast. So I see he's admitting to doing terrible work and just rushing through it. I was like, wow, Jaylee, okay. I mean, he's a young guy at this time. He said he just basically was studying art but didn't really want to go into commercial art and so his friends just said well you could probably get work in comics you're a good illustrator he went to a convention got hired end of story like it's just like that was happening in these days where you just brought your samples people were getting work also in the interview I found it was interesting as the the, cut as it closes out he says he's working on an original character for Image that he hopes will be on its 65th issue in five years and if we find mention of Jay Lee in five years at wizard magazine i'm actually going to be kind of surprised but we'll see Uh, because i don't recall him becoming like this marquee name nor do i recall him becoming this like veteran that everybody looks up to i could be wrong but this was his moment this year like 93 to 94 i remember jay lee and then never hearing from him again so time will tell
0: here's a a funny thought that i had today as we're going to dive deeper into image
1: beyond spawn
0: has Anything from Image really stood the test of time, other than, like, miniseries type of a thing at all? Like, like what has lasted since this spark in the 90s?
1: Well, I mean, there are books like Spawn and Savage Dragon that have just continued on and on. Right. What we're going to get to eventually, and in really not too long, is Gen 13, I feel like, is probably Jim Lee's biggest accomplishment through Image. You know, as much as agree, Wildcats yeah. was his launch title, I don't think that has lasted at all in anybody's minds. But Gen 13 is beloved and continues to be. They keep rebooting it. They keep working the characters into the DC universe as best they can, you know. So yeah. it wasn't until the later wave, like, for example, when we were just talked about the Max ever so briefly last episode, so many people on social media are like, I can't wait to hear all about the Max. They thought we were doing like a deep dive into the Max. <laughs> and people were like love that character. Sam Keith is the best. He's so great. I was like, really? Like, I just didn't think that Sam Keith's reputation continued on either. But apparently he's one of those creators that people really latched onto. But yeah, it's way later down the line when you get to stuff like The Walking Dead. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, the later creators that come in and the initial group are monumental in what they accomplished, but maybe their creations are not.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested if we ever wanted to do, like, a deep dive into the Max because it did have... like. Like a brief phenomenon with the TV show and everything else, interesting to talk about it like much deeper than we did last week or last episode. Uh, the other thing that I think about it is I wonder if at some point Image rebranded itself and was like, "Hey, we're for creators. Come in, make a story you don't want to have anywhere else." So that's where places like things like The Walking Dead come out and like.
1: Well, I I think that was always their idea. I just don't think that you know. It, again, The Walking Dead is a phenomenon, and it is lightning in a bottle. Because yeah, how many right. other image comics, like you said, really have endured or have gone into greater media? Somebody's gonna call one out and be like, "Well, there was there was a Witchblade movie." I was like, "There was a yeah. Witchblade TV series, TV movie, yes. whatever." You know, I mean there, there were things here and there. But I'm just saying, Marvel has come up with a formula now for their movies and characters, and that's just a little different than what Image was bringing to the table, and I think what their ultimate goal was. Um, I right. think, yeah, there there was a lot of we can cash in right now. This is our moment, and they kind of admit that a lot. They're like, "This was our time; we had to take it," and you know, they did well for themselves. Enduring characters, maybe not, but we'll see. Because this is the '90s nostalgia is just kicking in now, along with our show launching. So I feel like, well, we may see characters pop up here that we didn't expect in mainstream.
0: I mean, a lot of movie producing companies are optioning tons and tons of older comic book stories now that we might see some of these people want their own Avengers now. So who knows? We might get a Wildcats movie at some point in the world. You never know.
1: But is that the validation comic book fans need? We'll see. Alan Moore says no. (laughs) (laughs) Back in 1993, according to Wizard News, Marvel Comics had struck a deal with a Japanese comics publisher to release their titles in Japan under the name ShowPro. Now, Wizard claims that there are no American comics being published in Japan at this time, so they are touting this as this monumental moment of crossover, you know, East meets West. Now, if anybody lived in Japan in the 90s, whether you were like a military kid or I don't know under what circumstances you would have been there, tell us if you ever came across Marvel Comics at newsstands in Japan, because they already had their own huge comics industry, so did they really need, like, You know, in a few years in the States, like the manga invasion really hits hard and it gets a lot of coverage to the point where wizard actually tries to launch their own manga and anime focused magazine. So, I mean, but did that ever happen in Japan with American comics? Mm. I
0: I mean, I have to feel like Spider-Man transcends all countries, like of all their characters. He could be any. Well, he had a
1: Japanese TV show. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I would assume that if anything, you'd see Spider-Man comics popping up in Japan. Maybe not all. Marvel characters, but for sure, uh, you know Spider Man and maybe even the X Men probably were somewhere you could find them in Japan. I, that, I just I, think it'd be hilarious
1: if like Dark Hawk is like the biggest character in Japan of American comics, and if you go, they like, you know, Marvel. Oh, Dark Hawk, yeah, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that,
0: that and Moon Knight. We love Moon Knight. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's what I'm saying. If anybody lived in Japan or you know in the 90s and you know about this, we we gotta hear it from you. So find us on social media. But back to a American movie heroes here. Wizard News also mentions the impending release of the last action hero comic book adaptation from Topps Comics written by Stefan Petruca featuring art by Jerome Moore and John Nyberg. And it breaks my heart every time this is mentioned because the book was never produced due to production delays and the film taking at the box office. And it keeps like popping up here and there in all these different sections up into a few issues like the toying around section. They talk about the action Action figures and the tie-in comic book that's coming. It was advertised in Topps Comics, and I'm just like, man, if only.
0: I actually kind of like the Last Action Hero. It's kind of entertaining. It just they didn't know how to market it, I think, and people were looking for this bigger-than-life movie, and it was just more of a smaller movie. I don't know.
1: Well, the way I see it is, if they had produced the comic, I feel like that could have been a breakout comic for Topps to say, yes, we're doing the movie adaptation, and let's say it happened to sell well then they could go into kind of what evan dorkin did with the bill and ted's excellent adventures comic book where it's a continuation but you just kind of take it in these wild fun directions and that's what i would see because the concept of last action hero is possibly better than the execution and so Mm -hmm. it's like where can you take it like even on my other podcast sequel quest we pitch sequels to last action hero and it got really convoluted at one point you know but i feel like (laughs) in a comic book format you might be able to kind of break it down into pieces that are more digestible than trying to do another two-hour movie yeah but lifting my spirits is palmer's picks again highlighting mike allred's madman comics and they really go into the whole history of mike allred's publishing career in comics revealing that it was a surprise reveal at the end of the first madman miniseries that the character of frank einstein who had originally appeared in allred's book graphic music was behind the mask so it's interesting because me reading it i didn't read it till the late 90s and so for me i was just like oh well that's madman i know the character i know who's underneath and all of that but at the time if you happen to be at allred fan already and then you're like oh i'll read his next book and then in the last five pages the mask gets ripped off and you're like wait a minute it's the guy from what i don't believe you know like that would have been a fun little thing to discover just a crossover i don't know how often that happens in comics where creator goes from one story to another and then it's like oh by the way here's this guy you didn't know it was him all along he's the big bad or he was the hero under a mask
0: <laughs> i've never read madman i mean it looks interesting i like the art i know you're a big fan of it i might try to find a trade at some point and pick it up at least to see if i can read some of it
1: it's, it's odd comicsology.
0: i'm sure it is i'll have to look at it at some point when i have a couple hours to devote to reading it and
1: tick it out so i'm interested that's what the bathroom is for michael
0: <laughs> it is it is at the bath, except when you have your three-year-old bang on the door Daddy, what are you doing in there?
1: Daddy's trying to read Madman. Knock it off.
0: Daddy needs alone time,
1: honey. But for a more in-depth discussion of Madman, you could go back, check out episode 17 with our guest and fellow Madman enthusiast, Sean Robert. By the way, appearing in the documentary Wolfman's Got Nards, all about the Monster Squad fandom, coming out at the end of October. So if you're a fan of that movie and you ever wanted a real behind-the-scenes deal, Sean is a super fan and super collector of that film. I was lucky enough to see it in theaters during its limited run, so I got to see Sean on the big screen But it's now coming to DVD, Blu-ray, VOD soon enough. So just for all you Monster Squad fans, in October, there's your little bit of Halloween fun to look for. Ah, but bringing me back into the pit of despair is the fact that my declaration that the Look Familiar pet photos section of the magazine would never return was an act of hubris i will now pay for uh michael you tried to talk me out of it that i am a man of my word i will be forced to eat a copy of x-force number one in the poly bag because it does indeed return there are pictures of pets again in wizard magazine so i curse you choo choo the chihuahua and jake the cat I should have just kept my mouth shut, but you can check our social media accounts for the unappetizing bit of comeuppance I must endure.
0: We're ending the Wave Riders Wayback Machine about movies and music, but we're sticking with the pet segment.
1: (laughs) That's what the people want? We'll give it to them. Uh, If anybody has any (laughs) recommendations for how to eat a 30-year-old comic book, please send them my way. Two pieces of bread. (laughs) But speaking of Rob Liefeld, he is back in this issue for another combative interview with Patrick Daniel O'Neill. You might recall about 10 issues back, I think it was, he was being interviewed and Patrick Daniel O'Neill is just like going after him. He is dropping all this stuff, really, you know, laying into him and Rob made some commentary about that. So this is like a literal rematch because there is a cartoon in the article of Rob blasting a hole through Patrick with a cable sized gun and interestingly enough though it starts off professional I mean Rob says I'm ready for you this time Like he's like I'll take it he's like don't worry the big stuff's coming but he just lets Rob hype his Bloodstrike and Brigade books which are kind of spinning off from Youngblood then O'Neill brings up solicitations for Supreme which Liefeld admits to pulling from the schedule after one issue to get his career in order and then he did the same thing with Profit which he states quote maybe my first mature decision of the year. So Rob is saying, like, look, guys, uh I, I promised all the stuff. I, I just I'm not going to do it right away because he It goes on to address the delayed ship dates on books. And he says it's due to the high standards of production on coloring, etc. that Image has, yet they don't have the manpower to produce the books to the quality level the fans expect. Like, they don't have the printers ready to go, apparently. And Rob himself says, I bought three computers just so I could try to learn how to do it so we could get it done. But O'Neill calls him out again for announcing too many spit-off titles and not letting Youngblood just grow naturally on its own, become an established title, then start spitting stuff off, which Rob agrees with and says the expansion is over. Quote, I'm imploding rather than exploding. I don't know if that's the right phrase to be using. I'm imploding... basically means he's he's cutting down he's he's not he's not gonna throw 12 more books at us this year he's
0: downsizing is what he probably should have said i guess yeah i don't know (laughs) i i just have one thought about this article the picture for which rob liefeld is posing in this he's like wearing jeans and like you know it's a very 90s kind of that's his thing
1: man he's the jeans guy
0: uh, he's the jeans guy, man. Jeans and t-shirts with one sleeve rolled up, like he's got a pack of smokes under his sleeves, and <laughs> and, and he's like on a stool behind some sort of like cheesy backdrop.
1: Well, it looks like he took a, a, a high school photo.
0: Yes, it's it's like the the laser background you'd see as you'd like your senior year. Ugh. God.
1: Ugh. I mean, realizing he wasn't very far beyond his high school years. I think he was like 22 years old or something at this time. He
0: looked about 22, yeah. But, but what oh, he boy. says
1: is, I'm handing the books off to other creative teams. I hired an editor named Eric Stevenson who's going to keep me on track. But then O'Neill challenges. He says, How much influence can an employee editor have over the guy who pays his bills, essentially? And Liefeld agrees he can't override his editor since he's the creator and the copyright holder. But but then he calls out O'Neill's cynical and condescending tone of voice because the reader can't hear it in print. (laughs) He's like, you better print this. I want people to know how you're speaking to me. And finally, Liefeld reveals that the image creators are now penalized financially if their books do not get out on time because they hired a publisher, essentially somebody who's going to be overlooking all the image books. And so they will take money away from you if you do not meet your ship dates. So he also states that, quote, we are doing everything absolutely backwards. The comics industry has never seen anything like this. And then the final bombshell, this is like, the gun that O'Neill thought he brought to the knife fight. He says, Rob Liefeld owns the copyright to Image Comics and the logo, which flies in the face of the idea that they've been presenting that Image Comics exists as an ideal among seven creators, not a business entity, not one of us that owns everything. But Rob just diffuses that. He just explains he came up with the logo and the name two years ago. The rest of the crew decided to use that as their banner when they struck out on their own together. But they are transferring to a shared ownership agreement very soon so (laughs) it wasn't really like they built it up like it was going to be this knockdown drag out they're going to be cussing each other out it really was pretty lame it wasn't that great an interview is he still one of the owners of image or no I know he was out at one time there's a big falling out that comes up in a couple years but I think he eventually bought his way back in so I'd have Hmm. we'd have to call up Robert Kirkman is is uh, Rob Liefeld still with the crew I'm pretty sure he is though now I think he's back in the fold Uh, just as a little bit of follow-up here in brutes and babes bart sears reveals that the entrance in his cable cover contest where he gave a specific description that people who wanted to enter the contest had to create their art uh that they sent him in he's showing him off the winner is a gentleman named Stephen gallegos from smyrna georgia so congratulations steven did you ever get into the comic books field not that i can tell What <laughs> <laughs> wah Now, this one might be for your buddy Pete, who was on the show a while back here, Michael, but a new article called comic books and the final frontier it is a history of star trek comics so this is really interesting uh, especially the early days because the original comic was by gold key in the 60s and it was written by hey len ween he must be pretty young at that point yeah but they said that they farmed out the artwork to an italian artist who had never seen the show so the characters changed appearances each issue especially scotty he'd never seen what scotty looked like and they wore gun belts, and the Enterprise was rocket powered with flames that shot out as it flew through space. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. It's just like here's the thing we do. Okay. <laughs> because I remember they always call it Wagon Train to the Stars was the description back in the day. It was a western in space. So I guess he gave him gun belts for that? I guess so.
0: I mean, the, it, there's like three images of the Enterprise in this little article. Each one, the Enterprise looks totally different. Totally. Different. <laughs> every, every
1: image. In 1980, Marvel started producing Star Trek comics in the wake of the motion picture, but they weren't allowed to reference the TV series. Only the movie universe and the characters therein which made coming up with plots very difficult so they dropped it and after two years the dc picked up the license for star trek comics when the wrath of khan came out But all of a sudden, the ability to use pre-existing Star Trek lore as a starting point for the stories was allowed, and they really started to expand. Even Walter Koenig, who plays Chekhov, he got to write an issue of the comic, and then in the late 80s, Peter David started writing the comic too much acclaim, but he started introducing new characters and making it really interesting, and what happened was Gene Roddenberry was supposed to approve everything, and because they were developing Star Trek The Next Generation at the time... they suddenly said like no new characters all of your original characters you created have to disappear even though they were in the middle of a storyline with one and so peter david we went over this way back in issue three i think it was he talked about all his difficulties there so he just quit he's like i'm out of here
0: wow that's interesting
1: and then most recently, they started up a Next Generation comic book at this point, uh, and they let John Delancey, who played Q on The Next Generation, he got to write one of the annuals that came out. So and then uh, apparently now Malibu Comics is going to publish a Star Trek Deep Space Nine series. So I'd be curious to hear from Star Trek fans who read those how that turned out. Ever pick up a Star Trek comic? You want to laugh? Let's hear so it.
0: I have one star trek comic that i got on free comic book day about two years ago and the cover i think has like picard as like like kind of half borg half not borg and he's sitting in like the the controlled seat in, in the in the uh whatever they call the The bridge. The bridge, yeah. And I never opened the cover. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: it was free. It was free. (laughs) I actually, I had one for a long time. I don't even know where I got it, but it was definitely during Peter David's run in the 80s because it was the original crew, but in their movie uniforms, I remember, on the cover. So I was like, huh, I'll keep this around, I guess. I really like the art. I thought the, the actual likenesses were really well done. That's cool. Uh, Now, this is an interesting bit of, I guess, editorial, oh, my bad, because apparently 1,200 words were accidentally deleted from an interview with Dave Sim back in issue 17. And I think I remember us mentioning that it ended abruptly. (laughs) Like It was just like, whoa, that's the end of the interview?
0: Yeah, it did kind of end weird, right? Yeah, that's right.
1: So, here, they're reprinting them, but without any context from the previous issue, there's just, like, one little sentence, like, Uh, we left off, he was talking about this. So, about the only interesting thing from these 1200 words is that Sim claims that because he has 300 issues planned of his Cerebus comic, that... This is a complete, coherent universe if you read all of it. But that requires spending a lot of money to buy collected editions. Because you know, he's been doing it already for several years at this point And it's an independent comic, you know, so the print runs are not huge. So he started releasing all these collected editions so people could catch up. But again, he's saying it's worth the money. This is ultimately he's calling out DC and Marvel for the lack of continuity in their comics. He says, quote, they referring to the readers they contemplate Cerebus and say it's going to cost me $150 just to get the story until now I counter the argument by saying how much money have you invested in stuff that doesn't go anywhere if you try to read the last 100 issues of Spider-Man you're sure not going to believe that's someone's life So, yeah, there's no continuity anywhere else. I'm giving you continuity. No one cares.
0: I mean, (laughs) people complain about in continuity, out continuity all the time. No one cares as long as the story is good. I've been reading a lot of stuff with DC lately that is some in continuity, some slightly out, some in a totally different Earth. And I just, you know, if, if I enjoy it, if it's interesting, it doesn't matter to me. Like, I have, I feel like everybody has their own in their mind continuity of how DC is or Marvel is and so on and so forth and that's fine you know that's okay
1: yeah well if you go back to the early days of comics you know especially the golden age and silver age they were all one off stories usually three or four stories in one comic and it was never really like occasionally they would call back to things if you read those old comics but uh, for the most part it wasn't like a continuous story I feel like who set up the expectation is Marvel like Stan Lee had a quite a bit of continuity especially in like the spider-man books for example or fantastic four you know like there was history there and as it moved forward especially spider-man when you got into like all the soap opera of his girlfriends like you had to read issue to issue to know what was going on but yeah and i think they just every comics publisher went farther and farther away from that as time went on you'd kind of do your runs where you'd have continuity but then a new creative team comes on and washes it all away a lot of times
0: Right, I mean, just like you said, just the the golden age, for example, Batman number one introduced the Joker and Catwoman in one issue, and it was a
1: one off story. That was it. I think some people feel like it does because, like, well, it should be all one story, and some comics are like The Walking Dead. Like, if you read that, like, you were literally getting a full story. Even like, you know, Invincible, Stan Kirkman, right? Invincible's coming out. It's becoming a you know animated series on Amazon. But if you read through that series, yeah. I mean, single creator, and he just kept through, and you got a full story. So it does exist, but I'd say, like, for the huge mainstream characters, it does not. You know, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman. I mean, they're getting rebooted all the time.
0: All the time. And people always complain, like, oh, I don't know where to jump on and, and read. I don't know. Go to a comic book store and look for a story arc like, OK, so Batman just hit issue 100 and it was called this the Joker War. It was a 10 issue arc, more or less. OK, 101 is a t- an entirely new story arc. You could dive right in at 101 and more or less be able to figure out where you're going from. And if you want to go backwards, you go backwards. Wait till the trade comes out on Amazon and order it, you know, and you get it right away. That's, what I, that's how I look at it for me in particular.
1: Now, moving into sci-fi for just a moment, uh, there is an article that briefly is discussing forthcoming comics adaptations of books by Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov, as well as Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But the author basically mentions that science fiction isn't very popular in comics these days. So, you know, he doesn't put a lot of stock in what's to come. But speaking of the old days, Michael, the Comics Code Authority gives a history about that little stamp that appears on the cover of most, you know, silver age bronze age comics it was created by comics publishers to self-censor in the wake of the 50s witch hunt against morally reprehensible comic books and the comics code authority is just so interesting that it was a self-imposed standard of decency they called it for comics that eliminated sex gruesome violence vampires werewolves even the words horror and terror from comic books if a comic did not have that cca stamp it could not get on to Newsstands and many publishers that made their money selling these demonized comics, they just went out of business. Yeah. But some of them adapted. So, like, EC Comics who famously published Tales from the Crypt, they changed their anthology books to focus more on science fiction than horror to skirt the code guidelines.
0: Tales from Mars. Tales (laughs) from the Garden. Tales from anywhere but the Crypt.
1: Well, even like Marvel, what they did, you know, because they were publishing a lot of like monster books and all this stuff, so they changed a lot of their titles to like Tales to Astonish, Journey into Mystery, you know? So it seems just very generic. But speaking of EC comics, it's noted in wizard news in this issue that harvey kurtzman who worked for ec and eventually when they published mad magazine he was like their premier artist he's announced to have passed away as of this issue so it's just interesting that he was such a seminal part of that period that was uh you know difficult for comics and this was his moment to say goodbye Now, as a result of the code restrictions, many publishers just produced their stories in a magazine format instead, where the code didn't have any power over their content. Magazines like Eerie and Vampirella that we talked about last issue, you know? And Marvel itself did the same in the 70s, right? They had a lot of horror magazines and things like that. But by then the code had already relaxed its stance on monsters so marvel uh, suddenly introduced a successful line of horror comics with frankenstein and dracula you know tomb of dracula where blade the vampire hunter made his debut but ultimately now in 1993 the author is saying that because so many comics are sold through the direct market retailers aka the comic book stores they really don't care about the comics code authority it has no clout anymore it basically they are the arbiters of is this okay to sell to a kid who comes into my store and it's basically recognized in general he states that comics like movies are for all ages but the most interesting thing to me was that the big two so DC and Marvel still participate voluntarily in the Comics Code Authority with 80% of Marvel books and 45% of DC Comics still featuring the CCA Comics Code Authority seal in 1993? I don't remember seeing this on my book in 1993, but maybe I'm just blind to it by now.
0: This is one of those, like, the more you know moments because this is something new that I learned. I mean, I, I remember the Comics Code Authority and I remember hearing about that happening in the 50s and 60s, but I didn't realize it carried over this far in that they were still utilizing it, at least in the, in Marvel and DC, just to like have it on there. Because if you go to any comic book store in the 90s, no, no one cared, I think. It was just kind of like a, an afterthought, I feel. Like
1: yeah, that. well, actually, I'm looking at it here, Michael. So I just grabbed that web of Spider-Man 100 we talked about last episode and it's right there there if what it is is it's part of the corner box it's just part of the design of the corner box that i also have uh one of the milestone issues you know that dc was putting out and it has <laughs> it up there it's in the upper right hand corner so if they're wow. totally there i think yeah just as comic book readers we're totally blind to it by that point we don't care so we're not looking oh does this one have the seal
0: i better make sure i got it uh, you know
1: uh but speaking of the old days there is an article called top secret that gets into more detail about the kirby verse comics we've been talking about over the last few episodes where it's saying that the plan is there is a free 16 page comic called secret city saga number zero that is being sent to comic stores to build the buzz around these books that are produced by marvel artists and writers from the 60s who were contemporaries with kirby including steve ditko and roy thomas jerry conway and a whole lot more so three of the one shot books are Captain glory night glider and bombast which which I... Covered on the previous mini episode, which lead into the four issue Secret City saga. So they're all part of one little side of the universe of unused Kirby designs. But a very funny uh, bit of information that was passed our way by our pal at Illustrator Eric on Twitter was that Captain Glory, I looked at it and I was just like, man, it's so garish. It's so hard to look at. Looks like a rejected Captain America. And he said, according to his research, that it was a Captain America. A redesign that Jack Kirby was considering at one point to give him a fresh new look, and we can be grateful that didn't happen. Yeah, thankfully. But also in the Vix Michael, is a book called Satan Six. Although the author of this article is like, well, I think there's like eight or nine characters, but who's counting? Um, but it's about people from different eras of time that are condemned to limbo because they made a deal with the devil and now they're sent to Earth to corrupt souls for the adversary to earn their own freedom. So they basically they explain like, they're not bad people, but they were desperate people and they made the deal with the devil and now they're trying to get... Out of it, but what's weird about this is that this actually has pages penciled by Jack Kirby. So, like the other books we just talked about, Kirby, it was only involved in designing the characters. Satan Six, he's actually drawing the cover. Is being inked by Todd McFarlane, and every number one issue is polybagged with a Kirby Chrome trading card. What's interesting though is Jim Salakrup, who we were just talking about. He used to be the editor on Spider Man, Amazing Spider Man. He's now the Topps Comics editor in chief, and he said they have so many unused Kirby characters that it will take years to adapt them all. But he also notes that he's aware that retailers and their customers will see these comics as old fashioned, and as a result, the comic book shops are under ordering the books. But Salakrup says nobody thought modern readers would care about old characters like Magnus and Solar, or he says quote, and look at Valiant today. <laughs> mm. We know how popular Valiant is.
0: Yeah. You know what's funny? So they were saying here that readers didn't weren't interested in the older looking characters or like the older style at like the early Jack Kirby type of style but recently artists like Neil Adams he's doing a run on Fantastic Four right now he did a Superman book about a year ago and a Batman book about two years ago and that same kind of style almost a little bit more goofy than his original style back in the 80s and 90s early on and those books were selling like crazy like i bought both the batman run and the superman run i didn't love the stories they're kind of boring but the art, it's just it's so iconic and reminiscent of that time that I was like, I loved it just for that. And it's kind of funny that they're saying that people wouldn't be interested in that. I'm like, if, if it were me and I realize this, I'm like, there's a Jack Kirby illustrated book that's coming out right now. Like, I'd be interested even to, to pick up one issue just to say, hey, I bought it, you know?
1: Well, and you uh, may get your wish by the end of the episode, Michael. It's interesting you say, you know, you don't understand image because that's the mindset though at the time is everybody was saying the hot new thing, the old stuff. We want, we've had enough of it. We want to see innovation. And so I think that's why it was being under ordered because they're saying, no, 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 they're buying image books. We're going to order a whole lot of image, a whole lot of Valiant. That's what people are buying. You're a new comic company, but you're using old creators not cool hip creators. And so I think that's where the the issue came in. But, you know, you talk about the value of a comic. The next article here is called Signed, Sealed, and Delivered, and it discusses how collectible autographed comics can be and explains what to look for. It's mentioned there's several ways to get a signature. You could do it in person at a convention, mail it into a publisher to request a signature, which I could never imagine that would actually happen. You could buy it from a reputable comic art dealer like your pal, Mr. Glass, in uh, Unbreakable. Unbreakable, yeah. I wish. I wish there was a store like that. That'd be awesome actually one of the advertisers in wizard magazine called bow and board one of our listeners on social media said that he used to go to that store it was actually out here in arizona and he said it was very highfalutin it was very like original comic art and signed comics all over the place so such a place did exist but the final option presented is you could just shop on qvc aka the home shopping network who are offering books signed by jim shooter chris claremont neil adams and jurgens Surprisingly, the author suggests that QVC is actually the best way to get a signed comic because the authenticity is confirmed. You know, you have them on video if you record it saying this is a real signature. So they become liable, I guess. It's funny you bring up QVC. As a kid, when I first got my very first, like, color TV
0: that had cable, I, I used to sit up late at night and I'd love watching the QVC. And I remember watching this where they would list the comic books And I was like, oh, man, I would love to call up and buy stuff. And there was this guy. He had a real southern accent. And he used to go, it's limited edition, baby, limited edition. (laughs) I got this signature right here, limited edition. And I used to love it. I just imitate him all the time.
1: Well, apparently he was a heck of a salesman because 1,500 polybagged issues of Superman number 75 that were signed by Dan Jurgens and Brett Breeding sold out in two minutes on QVC for $92 a piece. Wow, that's pretty awesome. That's crazy now that's crazy listen to this another 1500 copies of magnus robot fighter number zero signed by jim shooter sold out at a price of 142 dollars a piece are you kidding me this is insane that's ridiculous That guy was, like, hopped up on the PCP Uh, that day. He was going hard. He was
0: also (laughs) the knife guy, too.
1: Like, he'd be like, I got this limited edition knife right here, this limited edition
0: baseball (laughs) card right here. Oh, he's on. I loved him. Wow, he could sell the heck out of a comic book.
1: (laughs) The the sad part is, X-Men number one, signed by Chris Claremont, sold for just $22. No declaration that it even sold out. So It's too bad. But, you know, that was a a very highly printed book. So hard for... anybody to believe that it was limited edition (laughs) (laughs) but michael let's check in on the price of some of these books with the punisher's price guide (laughs)
0: Those QVC prices for autographed comics are a major sign of the times. And since we've already covered Superman 75 on Punisher's Price Guide, it's time that we put Magnus Robot Fighter number zero to the test. We've just learned that the book went for $142 with Jim Shooter's autograph. So what's it worth today? Well, Magnus Robot Fighter Zero featuring a Jim Shooter signature with Certificate of Authenticity now sells on ebay for a whopping 30 to 50 dollars sorry autograph magnus robot fighter zero you are a burnout but let's see what's burning up the tv and movie rumor mill right now with heroes in motion Andy Mangles reports that a Daredevil TV series that was in development is officially dead, but that Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, is moving full speed ahead. I didn't know there was a Daredevil TV series in the works. That's kind of a bummer.
1: We covered it just two episodes ago, Michael.
0: (laughs) I'm lucky I remember what
1: I had breakfast today, man. I don't know. (laughs)
0: Anyway, X-Men the animated series has been officially renewed for a second season. Also, those corrected earlier episodes of the series that were sent back to Korea are being aired in the reruns. But one of the showrunners is leaving the show to produce the Exo Squad cartoon based on the Mech Warrior toy line by Playmates. So the showrunner left x-men to go to
1: exo squad hey he already created one hit he figured i i got the Midas touch baby exo squad yeah i don't know if that was a smart move on that guy oh well they were Oops. cool toys i never enjoyed the cartoon though i did tune into a few episodes and i was like eh. but the, the toys were cool because they were like gi joes inside of mech armor it was awesome
0: i think i had a couple of those yeah i did have at least one or two of those action figures but i may have watched one episode of the show and that was about it sorry about that exo squad superman the new movie is reportedly in development with a 35 to 40 million dollar budget and a story involving superman being shrunk to fight brainiac the salkinds who produced the first Superman films, will still be involved, but we don't actually get a new Superman film until Superman returns, obviously, in 2006. Is this superman the movie the one that's like kind of linked up with tim burton or is that a different one
1: no well i mean that one also involved brainiac but no this is like we've done our superboy tv series we want to get back into movies and so they they were trying to put together a new movie and they keep saying like well it may be a new cast is also what they reported i mean it just never came together i think people were still pretty burnt out after quest for peace and superman 3 for that matter Ugh, superman 3 i honestly
0: think that movie is
1: worse than Superman. Yes,
0: it's awful. That movie, other than the the like Superman fights Clark Kent part mm-hmm. of it, the rest of the movie is a total throwaway, and it's a yeah. bummer.
1: I mean, Cyborg Lady will haunt your dreams, but oh, does not count for much? That was
0: horrifying. Like that was, oh, I still can't watch that part. It's so gross and scary. Yeah, that's how nerdy I am, guys. <laughs> <laughs> there are brief mentions of the mask the crow and the shadow films still moving forward while the article is full of photos of the roger corman fantastic four movie hey steven when are we watching this movie i want to know i want to do this uh, <laughs> this special and more are promised in the next issue so it's kind of funny that like the mask the crow and the shadow all became like released into theaters but the fantastic four never did it's just. This is so bizarre. I mean, I love The Mask. I think The Mask is a great film. The Crow is a great film. I know how you feel about The Shadow. I really like The Shadow as well. And did you hear recently that Jim Carrey is in the talks to do The Mask 2? Wow. No, I did not hear that.
1: That's cool. That's true. I I mean, he's coming back, baby.
0: I read it either on uh, like screen rant or something like that the other day i was like whoa hey that's interesting like he's in talks and, a, and they're trying to get like cameron diaz back and a few other people that were in the well, first it, it film it needs to
1: open with him smashing J.B. kennedy's head in with an oversized mallet and taking oh, back the mask
0: <laughs> at, at the very least oh boy finally in his column Writing at the Edge, David Quinn reveals that he has been working hard on a script for Faust movie based on his violent and disturbing comic book. Quinn discussed the difficulty of adapting the sexual violence that is pivotal to his story, not responding well to the producers using words like gratuitous and justifies his work by stating that he had to watch A Clockwork Orange in college, a film that originally received an X rating, but is now considered a classic. I mean, we had to watch it in film school as well, I remember. He predicts that he'll turn in an NC-17 script, but it will be cut down to an r of the day
1: uh but yeah so again this david quinn guy i mean he just wrote kane we covered kane last episode oh
0: yeah we we covered it all right (laughs)
1: <laughs> covered it up uh, in some manure but no yeah so it's just so interesting that he's just like yeah this is this is gonna break through this is you know this is what hollywood needs it's kind of like the tone of it you know he's like ah and they want to make my movie they're gonna neuter it i'll let them make it though because i want the money <laughs> i'm sure that's what he's thinking in the back of his head it's like I, i'm artistically making my declaration here but pass me that check faust <laughs> never happens there's not a faust pass movie me that check <laughs> love it oh my god
0: that should be the the log line on instagram when you post that picture of that article pass me the check
1: (laughs) (laughs) but you know he just wanted to make that money and so did the comic book publishers so let's find out how they did it with guy Gardner's gimmicks a go-go how bizarre how
0: bizarre how bizarre
1: So the first Wizard half comic is offered in this issue featuring everybody's favorite purple guy, the Max. It's free with coupon and just $1.95 shipping. Now this becomes a major deal going forward for Wizard with dozens of half comics being published. I mean, this is just the beginning, but judging by how popular it was. And we'll, uh, we'll be sure to cover those. I have a funny thought before before we go on. Yeah. So a half comic
0: produced by wizard is a dollar 95 in shipping right but i am sitting here holding a comic of that time period the cover price is two dollars and fifty cents for a full book so you're telling (laughs) me a person will pay two dollars for a half comic but they'll spend 250 on a full people need to really learn how to do math
1: that's all i gotta say It's collectible. It's limited edition. (laughs) Limited edition, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Now, not to be outdone, Valiant is introducing Turok Dinosaur Hunter this month, featuring a hybrid chromium and foil wraparound cover. So literally the entire cover... Is, a, is chromium it's infused it's foil it's like you can see the designs etched into it like it is a heavy duty thing i had this in my collection for years and years
0: i didn't realize that Turrok dinosaur hunter didn't come out till now i thought it was a much older story than that that's really interesting it was kind of about the
1: second wave of valiant
0: Ah, i gotcha okay that makes sense okay cool
1: now coming up here jim lee's death blow number one features what's called a black varnish cover which basically means if you look at it it looks like spinal taps smell the glove But well, how much more black can it be and the answer is none none <laughs> more black you know so it's like it's just it's black you can't see anything but if you hold it in the right light you could just barely see a faint drawing of death blow's head well, that's what a black varnish cover is but also part of the feature uh, is a flip book however this is not a flip book with a jim lee character it's some non-jim lee character called cybernary by a guy called nick manabat so it's like this futuristic world fantasy story but this is what's weird though so it's actually not a flip book like the back cover If you flip it over, it's, you know, facing the opposite direction. But if you open the book, you're literally reading the book backwards, because the cybernary story is just printed in succession after a very short deathblow story. So it's all facing the same direction in the book, and they do it with issue 2 also. I have both of them. And for some reason, it's just like, they make it look like a flipbook, but it's not. So there's some miscommunication with the printer, because Rob Liefeld did a lot of flipbooks with his comics, and it worked. This one doesn't. Ever, frankly, in my opinion, Deathblow is a ripoff for jim lee fans because the stories are so short it's mostly cybernary and you actually get more story in his first appearance in the darker image anthology book which by the way is solicited also to be an issue number four. Two, three, and four never came out they only ever released darker image number one really? so you were not going to get that the rest of the story you had to buy oh. the full fledge comics this is the thing, though. So, Deathblow number two, Ghibli comes out. So, not only has he ripped you off by giving you just a few pages in each issue, now he, he writes a letter to the readers where he explains, I want to do right by you. So, in the spirit of fairness, Deathblow will now be priced at $1.75 because the number of story pages is less than the standard 22 pages you normally get for a $1.95 image book. I do this because as co-founder of Image and producer of a number of Image titles, I have always felt most beholden to the readers, the faithful fans who have followed my work and have followed me to do what I do today. You have spoken and you have been heard. Furthermore, as of issue four, Deathblow will become a quarterly book. I have really enjoyed drawing Deathblow, but out of necessity, it has evolved into more of a side project for me as the demands of doing the Wildcats monthly book have increased. So, like, he gets the issue, two and he's like, uh, guys, I'll do it eventually. I just, uh, Wildcats is more important. Sorry if you liked this great new character, but you're not gonna have him. I, yeah. I mean, at least he's a man, like you said, of integrity. I'm gonna drop the price of this book because I realized I'm ripping you off, and I don't want you to hate me. So, I don't know if Deathblow comes back later as, like, a full-fledged comic. I assume it does without Jim Lee. But all that being said, I had a Deathblow sticker on my junior high calculator.
0: <laughs> it was so
1: random. I bought one pack ever of image like jim lee sticker cards and deathblow was like the cool guy like oh he's got a bandana he was leading up against this like old classic car bandana and i never read (laughs) a deathblow comic until this week when i read these issues you know and i'm just like how did i decide deathblow was the coolest guy to
0: have that's pretty funny adam oh my goodness that makes me laugh there's a i don't know if there's a tv show or a movie that i used to watch but they used to make a joke like like
1: Deathblow became a movie at some point and like, oh, oh yeah. yeah what is that oh it's seinfeld dude it's seinfeld they go to a movie theater and it's like Deathblow. Yes. it's when it's when kramer's buddy is the bootleg movie other guy and then he gets Jer- or jerry to start filming it's one of yes. my favorites i love it's that good, that, episode. that is
0: a good episode the cinematography on this is breathtaking.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and then I love, like, when George tries to take it over to be dangerous for his new girlfriend. He's like, I'm a bootlegger! Bootlegger to the yeah, movies, baby! <laughs> bootlegger. Oh, I'm going to watch that this weekend. That's so good. <laughs> now, also, uh, at Image... Blood Strike Number One comes out this month, featuring the infamous "Rub the Blood" cover. I actually sold this off during my Liefeld yard sale in the wake of the Liefeld affair, so it went to one <laughs> of our listeners out there. I don't even know if he listens. I think he saw the ad. and He's like, "Wait." Seriously, I'll give you eleven bucks for that. Eleven bucks? Yeah, I guess I think I sold it off total fifteen bucks for a whole pile of Lifeheld books. So I'm sure they're going to oh. go up in value next year, and I will be uh, kicking myself. Yeah. <laughs> but interestingly enough, not to be outdone by himself, Rob Lifeheld has an ad announcing that Brigade Number Two features the first ever Mary Coat cover. M-E-R-R-I-C-O-T maricoat cover no idea what that means these printed gimmicks are just gibberish now it's just like make up a word no one cares what's a maricoat What does that even mean? And it just gets crazier from here, okay? Malibu Comics announces they're releasing, quote, the first fully die-cut comic with ferret number one, which is cut into the shape of the hero's head. So it's like, literally, he's like, not quite in full profile. He's at a little bit of an angle. And so it's like, cut out around like the contours of his head. It's like, so strange. Yikes. Like, I kind of remember they doing gimmicks like this, but
0: I'm just like, was it like were comics sales dropping they needed to do all these gimmicks like no it,
1: it was that the prices were going up because they if it was cool enough if it got enough hype people would buy it so if you made it weird enough and people were talking about it then they would want to buy it in theory now again i don't know how many people have ferret number one in their long box you can reach out to us i just don't think yeah. it worked for malibu I don't
0: think so either i mean there's no ebay like you know how hard it must have been to track down these kind of, like, really obscure books plus the gimmicky covers? I just I just kind of, like, rationalized that in my brain. Like, a, a comic book retailer couldn't even order it online. They'd have to go through Diamond and, like, find these things and, like, order X amount. It just seems like it's such a hard time in a, in, like retail history to pull that stuff off well well you fisherman. were taking
1: a, it was a gamble every time but it was paying off some of the time so they were willing to try it here and there you know if you were a good enough salesman and you're like ah this is the next big one boys you remember how many copies superman 75 sold you remember oh, how man. many copies you sold of spider-man in a different colored polybag you know yeah, so it's just like true. take the chance take the chance now uh for you thor fans eric masterson gets his own book and Thunderstrike number one which has a holographic graphics lightning patterned foil cover okay what if number 50 what if hulk killed wolverine which we covered way back on episode three features an embossed silver wolverine skull cover i mean the interior art's kind of garbage but that cover was beautiful (laughs) it was (laughs) was well done and finally, DC is in on the act with Adventures of Superman number 500 we covered on our special episode with the white poly bag and the peel-away cover image, plus all the Reign of the Superman launch books are officially coming out with their die-cut Superman shield covers. So all of that is happening this month. So this is a big month for gimmicks. Big wow. month for getting your hype on. But we know a couple of guys who also like to get their hype on. Michael, it's time for... Jim and Todd's Hype Machine.
0: Todd McFarlane is reportedly collaborating with Neil Adams, who I mentioned earlier, funny enough, for a crossover book involving Spawn and the previously discussed continuity comics creation of shebat we have found no evidence that this book was ever produced does anybody listening know any different about this because again i'd only heard about shebat from this show whenever we discussed it a few weeks ago bizarro wizard market watch reports that the once hot marvel books drawn by jim lee todd McFarlane, and rob liefeld now collect dust and that marvel's biggest sellers are cartoon adaptations of ren and stimpy as reported last episode and that every new title from image despite the delays are the fastest selling books in stores according to retailers now let's go to the scoreboard jim had five mentions this issue and todd had five mentions as well giving the total of jim now having 130 And Todd, 116. I also find it funny that, like, Ren and Stimpy is one of their highest-selling
1: books. That's very crazy. It's hard to believe, because they said they under-ordered it, and yet it's like this hot book everybody wants now, apparently. Who knows? (laughs) Alright, but something else that's heating up around here is the action figure game. So it's time to jump into Asriel's action figure fury. Brian Cunningham visits Toy Fair 1993 and he's got some stuff to report. Most important, the second wave of the Toy Biz X-Men line is featured and it is heavy on X-Force. Rob Liefeld mentioned recently on his podcast how before X-Force number one had ever been released, the Toy Biz execs were looking through his character designs at the Marvel offices and selected nearly all of them to become toys. And so this was a subset of the X-Men line you know the card actually read x-force not being a reader of those comics when i was younger i bought no x-force toys outside of the original cable who actually gets two new figures in this set both with space and stealth armor but most exciting to me as a kid from this line were the second passes on characters they had already done poorly so i remember picking all of these guys up the second cyclops that was based on the jim lee design instead of the x-factor design of the original the second apocalypse with the removable arm attachments and the second saber tooth which was just a total improvement as far as the sculpt went and they are still on my shelf to this day wow those were beautiful beautiful figures they are a little paint chipped because i played with them a lot Uh, but (laughs) even the cyclops i remember this is a weird story for you michael if you remember on cbs back in the day there was a tv show called dave's world starring harry anderson from night court did you ever see that show
0: Yes. Yeah, I most people remember. probably
1: just vaguely remember it. It was, it was based on this writer, I believe Dave Barry is his name, who was like a newspaper columnist, did humor columns. And so they made a TV show. So my friend's younger brother's best friend was a kid named Andrew who played the youngest son on that show. And so he would come over to their house sometimes while I was like hanging out with, with my buddy Devin. And so I would, got to know this kid, but he was super into X-Men and the figures and everything too. And I remember him telling me, he's like, oh yeah, I could get you that Cyclops figure because I couldn't find it in any stores. I was like, I can't find it. I don't know why. And so he's like, oh, I saw it at the Toys R Us by my house. So he's like, I'll get my mom to take me. He's like, you got to trade me something though, right? So he's You're like, like what, what figures do you have? i had to trade him like three of my x-men figures and then he went and got the cyclops figure for me and like you know months later he brought it to me and i I kept bugging uh, my buddy's little brother i was like when's andrew coming back i want my cyclops (laughs) i'm like 13 (laughs) where's my cyclops you nine-year-old bring it here who trades action
0: figures how could you do that i'd be like Tell me where the store is. I'll have my mom take me. <laughs> like, for God's sakes.
1: Uh, I don't, don't believe, believe me. I had gone to Target. I had gone to Toys R Us. I was not anywhere. Everybody was buying them out.
0: Wait, you guys had Target back then? Oh, yeah. We didn't get our first Target in New York until... 1999 98 oh, really
1: yeah much much later it's oh, I, I, I bought most of my action figures at target yeah wow fascinating also covered briefly are the jurassic park toys from ketter where brian cunningham specifically mentions how excited he is to get a jeff goldblum toy i remember the jeff goldblum toy i remember it well it was um, the only one that actually looked like the character from the movie that's true they later redid the head sculpts for some of them to make them appear more like the actors but yeah jeff goldblum always look pretty good yeah we also get mentioned that hasbro is producing street fighter 2 action figures but brian says like the details are sketchy of course we now know they were tying into the live action film with john claude van Damme, and in my opinion were disappointingly produced in the style of the gi joe figures yes they were they were little guys. They just, they. I was just expecting them to be these like super ripped characters, you know. At least Toy Biz dimensions, you know. And that's just not what we got. And I, I remember walking out of the theater, going to a pharmacy right next to the movie theater, <laughs> and seeing them on the peg and being like, "Nope, nope." And I was so mad. I was like, I would have bought all of these right now, you know. <laughs> and you guys blew it. Oh boy, that's funny. But Michael, I'll tell you what else I bought at that pharmacy. A lot of trading cards, so it's time to flip through Gambit's Deck of Cards.
0: Marvel Universe Series 4 cards are announced with the unique feature of 13 nine card blocks that make a full picture when put them together. Wow, that's kind of cool. I kind of like that. Did you
1: ever see these? I don't
0: remember. I I I didn't
1: collect much of this series. I only bought like a pack or two, but I have them in my binder. And yeah, it's just, it's like a full picture. And then they just cut it up into nine individual squares, you know, and each character is on each card, but you put them together and you got a full picture, full action scene. Wow. That's kind of cool. I kind of wish I knew about that. That's really interesting.
0: The series will also feature cards based on Marvel UK line of comics, which they are promoting heavily at this time. And, of course, there will be nine foil-stamped cards and a Super 3D Spider-Man card. Okay, here's a really, really dumb question.
1: <laughs> How do you sell a three D card without three D glasses? I know, and, and when you do, do people want it? I have several packs of cards with the actual 3D gimmick. Jaws 3D Side of trading Card Series that came with glasses and all the cards were in 3D. No also, way. Also, uh for the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. I love that show. They had like a bunch of cards that were normal and then they had a three D card that would come in the pack. That's so weird. So weird. <laughs> I love that show, though. That was a good show. DC is
0: preparing to release their Bloodlines trading card set, which ties into their upcoming crossover event, where aliens give normal people superpowers, which will surely be covered in an upcoming issue. I don't remember a Bloodlines story but it. Nobody or... does. <laughs> That's the problem. Huge flop. I, I mean, I know of Almost
1: all DC major events, that one I've never heard of. I have a pack of the Bloodlines cards, and I looked at every card, and I'm like, I know nothing. I, I recognize nobody in here. That's weird. Also in the mix from DC are the
0: Milestone trading cards, with a special prototype card from this set being polybagged in Wizard number 22. Now, I have to ask you, Adam... When you did your search for Wizard magazines, did you particularly
1: try to find one still in the polybag for number 22? Well, I didn't actually get it from the Wizard issue, because the issues of the comics also came polybagged with the character, you know, that was featured in the comic. So, like, for example, I have, you know, the hardware trading card. I guess you would call that one a prototype, you know, like Wizard is saying here, just to get you excited about the set. But no, I, I did. I have very few polybagged issues, only because I you know I wanted them as reader copies, right? And I'm not necessarily collecting all the ephemera, but the few that I do have, I will definitely cover as we go forward. And be like, it comes with this, it comes with this. So
0: you used ephemera, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Valiant Castaway Jim Shooters Defiant Comics announced the Plasma Zero issue trading card set. That tells the comic book story by assembling the full set of cards into a 13 page comic book. We'll cover Plasm more in depth when the first issue hits the shelves oh boy when does that happen
1: oh boy. <laughs> soon enough but this is weird right like th- now this is like a totally innovative thing first you know the marvel series 4 is saying okay we'll do a full picture you know with each nine cards makes a full picture now they're saying if you want to even get the first comic book right you want to get the full story like an issue zero then you got to buy the whole trading card set and assemble it into a comic book that feels criminal to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you're going to have us
0: 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old kids go to a comic book store and be like, how much for that entire box of random cards? Oh, that'll be $200,
1: kid. Uh, uh, piggy bank, break. break. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, at the time, it was a genius business move, right? They're saying, hey, what do kids love? Comic book trading cards. What else do they love? Comic books. Put them into one. We'll double our money. It's great. They'll like keep buying packs of the cards to get a comic book. You know how annoyed
0: I'd be if I bought like 25 packs of those cards? And there was just old duplicates and stuff of like that, I'd be like, Why? What did I do to myself? I just threw away all my lunch money for the month. Oh no.
1: The end is near. Well the good news is you can currently get an unopened box of plasm trading cards for six ninety nine plus shipping. <sighs> I
0: don't don't even know. Jim Lee is getting a trading car series from Topps based on his Wildcats comic announced in a huge double-page ad proclaiming that it will include a hundred original cards drawn by
1: Jim Lee for this set. No wonder he didn't have time to draw Death Blow.
0: Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Holy moly. Plus guest artists Adam Hughes, Dale Keown, Sam Keith, Jay Lee and Mark Silvestri prism chase cards and randomly inserted Jim Lee autograph cards. Jim Lee's hand must have wanted to fall off by the end of doing <laughs> all that. ay Finally, Malibu's Ultraverse line of comics hasn't even launched yet, but they're announcing a trading card set featuring the heroes and villains of their new comic book
1: universe. Okay, great. <laughs> woohoo malibu comics (laughs) yay you say that now but soon enough we have a guest coming on who exclusively wanted to talk about the ultraverse and he's just like i gotta have that issue you gotta let me on so oh goody there's a lot of people that have some goodwill towards it michael so we will find out you'll discover it
0: some melatonin that one and just kind of zone out a little bit (laughs) (laughs) all righty well that is uh gambit's
1: deck of cards so
0: What's left for us, Adam?
1: Wow, I mean,
0: like I said, this is
1: jam-packed, this issue, and now we're going to jump into Robin's Reading Rainbow. Rocky Robin, yeah. Rocky Robin. Rocky Robin, really yeah. So, the big Issues announced as being released this month are all the Anaya comics titles that we discussed a few episodes back. Oddly enough, Cindy Crawford, number one, from Friendly Slash Personality Comics. Cindy Crawford had her own comic. Okay. Mystery Incorporated, number one by Alan Moore, which is being released through Image, which is a riff on the Fantastic Four. I highly recommend this. This was all part of his 1963 line, which in a lot of ways was similar to the verse we were just discussing
0: mm-hmm. they were all cool.
1: one-offs and then they all came together in one issue and then sandman number 50 from dc's vertigo line archie comics is releasing sonic the hedgehog number one for all you up kids <laughs> beating a once cool concept into the ground infinity crusade number one from marvel Oof. yeah um, and then in addition to all the jack kirby inspired books from tops comics we discussed earlier there is also one last official comics work from jack kirby Phantom Force number one. I don't know what Phantom Force is. I don't know what it's about. Well, here's what wizard pick section says for you. Oh, good. Jack Kirby pencils his last full story. The government is holding on to the antidote to a plague that has been wreaking havoc on the planet. And it's up to Phantom Force to get it. Now, that statement that it's his last full comics work. How did they know that? jack kirby doesn't die until a year from this point point. and so I, I did he officially retire after producing this like that's the part that i don't understand I don't under what circumstances this was created and did jack say yeah this is what i want to go out on <laughs> phantom force number one uh, that's what the kids want these days that's what we'll give them is this the only one that he did is this the only issue well, that's the thing. So he did the penciling. He had like a basic Phantom Force comic concept, but then also apparently they smashed in a bunch of panels and artwork from a failed Bruce Lee comic. Uh, on Rob Liefeld's podcast, actually, he talked about how he spent a lot of time with Jack in his final days. And, you know, I'm sure that was part of why this comic came together. But he said he went to his house once and... Jack was showing him all this unproduced work, and he was flipping through his folders, and he's like, what's this? He's like, oh, yeah, that's a Bruce Lee comic I tried to get going in the 70s. Nobody wanted to buy it, you know? And so they used a lot of that artwork, apparently, in this issue. Wow. Wow. This really is a Frankenstein of a comic book. Phantom Force Number One, you know, as we're talking about 1993, he was really like pushing his name out there. Anybody that wanted to work with Kirby, he was on board with it. So whether it was Toff's Comics or in this case, Image Comics, okay, and all the cover, you know, it says created by the legendary Jack King Kirby. And the credits in this issue, I don't know if you looked on the front and back covers. did you notice, Michael?
0: So, first of all, so it says, you know, plot and pencils by Jack Kirby, script by Jack Kirby, and the other two guys I don't know, but inks Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson, Scott Williams. It just goes on. And then, like, if you go all the way to the back, there was so many names on the back. I'm like, i stopped reading it there's it literally says (laughs) 22 names of people who were inkers on this issue alone which is yeah
1: so what it is is obviously it's all these current comics talents saying if this is going to be the last thing jack kirby works on i want to be a part of it right so yeah literally every single page was inked by a different artist yeah now in some cases they doubled up you know so like eric larson i think does like four or five pages so on and so forth so it's the majority are the image guys but i will mention to you michael that when you get into issue two which i also have a copy of (laughs) it's even bigger but here's what happened so jack kirby does the first 42 pages and then pencils for pages 43 through 54 are by this michael thebedou guy who is part of a comics company called genesis west which apparently was very involved with jack kirby so these first two issues of phantom force are coming out through image but then the series continued on and it was going through genesis west and in fact what was interesting about that is that none of that is penciled by jack kirby so it's like these two issues image is like kirby did something some of the work okay we can get involved and then they brought on a bunch more friends so here's here's just a few more names that pop up uh inking issue two art t bear we have keith giffen we have jeff matsuda we have uh paul scott and steve rude marat michaels and uh, dan fraga those are familiar to you folks who love your extreme comics from rob liefeld but yeah so really it was just like this huge collaboration but in a lot of ways too like we talked about this was just uh kind of thrown together from multiple concepts uh so i'm curious for you michael as we get into the story what was your first impression of the setup of this universe
0: so when i received this from you it was still in the poly bag like sealed from 1993 and i was like really reluctant to open it but i was like all right we got to read it And I ended up, before I opened it, went on eBay to see what it was worth before (laughs) I opened it. I was like, okay, it's not worth that much. I can open this. So then as I opened it, the trading card fell out. And I got um, Phantom Force Ginseng as the trading card. Did you get the same trading card or a different one? Mine
1: was not in the poly bag. So the collection I got of issues 1 through 4 and issue 0 were already opened. So I did not get that. Wonderful collectible.
0: Yeah. So I have this. It's, it's kind of a cool little trading card. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's literally kind of a, a, a panel stolen out of the book and it's, uh. it's cute. So let me see how I can word this politely. Granted, again, this is 1993 and not 2020 where, you know, cultural, you know, misappropriation and whatnot is much more aware of people's minds but it just kind of felt a little off like the, the characters generally are of an asian background for the most part and um I, it just felt it, it didn't land for me the way that they were kind of drawn in particular with their eyes and that kind of threw me a, a bit the, the first character that you see is this guy on the cover who's got like a big sword on his chest and the costumes are kind of interesting this blue and purple motif i don't know what the symbol on their head actually means Do you? right know what
1: I mean? yeah it's, it's some type of you know foreign alien language and that guy's name is apocalypse no relation
0: <laughs> yeah my other first impression was though i think the cover feels like a jack kirby cover the way it's drawn because there's sort of like fire or some sort of laser and that apocalypse guy's arm is in the way of the f it looks like Phantom Orse? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good
1: point. For your first issue, you don't want to block the title. Yeah,
0: that was kind of confusing the art is very nice like it it does feel like there's a lot of different people involved in this book because it does kind of meander in its style a little bit not terribly but it does have different vibes to it
1: now the reason is as we discussed Rob Liefeld actually found these pages that Jack Kirby had penciled for a Bruce Lee story
0: that's what I it felt like a Bruce Lee story because it, one of the characters looks like it's drawn like Bruce Lee
1: yes so like the first half of the book is action adventure with like superhero hero people, the first little adventure where they're going to pick up a canister, you don't understand till later, it's because there is this black plague that has gone throughout the universe, and here is the antidote, and they're trying to retrieve it, but the funniest part of this because it's Apocalypse who we mentioned and this gal who is in a cloak named Probe and they are on the mission and the canister is on a table, and then the table comes alive, and it's a, a robot table. Yeah, <laughs> it was so the robot fights them to a standstill so they have to throw the canister back and they're like well we can always get a second try you know it's like oh not so heroic to begin with better safe than sorry you know not taking any chances but then it goes into like this character named Sensei who's basically your classic kung fu master you know like the long white hair the Fu Manchu mustache you know like you said Michael you're kind of like eh, I don't think that translates well these days and then this other guy who's obviously eyes are totally black who seems to be somewhat more in charge than sensei like he just says he's very disappointed in the team and he doesn't think they've done a good job but then they talk about well we gotta get ginseng in on this so then it cuts to earth where you see this guy just kind of in a neighborhood with a bunch of kids and he is like this super well known martial artist
0: and it literally looks like bruce lee like literally out of the pages of a bruce lee book here's the funny thing that i know Noticed about this particular issue i almost wondered if they weren't sure if they were going to be making more of it because usually when you read a comic book and it's a larger arc maybe it's a six issue arc or a 12 issue arc or whatever each issue would sort of be like a chapter in the, the overarching story there's three chapters in this issue and they call it chapter one chapter two chapter three like and each one is like two pages long which is a little confusing and i didn't understand why they did that
1: well like i said i have a feeling it just has to do with the fact that they were kind of taking different parts of different books and putting them together so they're just like well uh, this is as much as Kirby Drew of this so then they had to basically you know just say well uh, I guess this ends the chapter on to the next part and uh but in this process like you say uh we have Jen has a girlfriend and she gets abducted so then now he's gotta go rescue her and it's part of the larger plot and that's the end of the issue it's just kinda like well he goes and he fights the bad guys in a you know a dungeon somewhere but they say now you have to go really and get the anti- And do you know what Jin Sang's real name is? Sean? chow oh where'd you find
0: that the, the collectible card that i got
1: oh hey it's good for something it gives me
0: his height which is 510 his weight which is 175 and his first appearance of where he popped up in phantom force number one
1: now one thing i'll just mention at the end of this michael for you is that so you might recall as you flip through the final pages the back end is just all the different artists basically writing a couple paragraphs about why they love jack kirby yeah so so it's, a, it's basically a kirby be love fest in the back but the maybe most outrageous quote i guess you would say is from todd mcfarland because he says here at image i think a lot of us could be referred to as the kirby's of the 90s i'm not saying that to be arrogant or presumptuous because i don't think any one person could ever match what jack kirby has accomplished during his lifetime in comics but by my definition of what kirby brought to comics i think we've inherited the mantle <laughs> there that's you go todd that's how you do yeah. it there you go
0: absolutely now on the very last of like illustrations before all the letters to the editor so to speak there is a a page it's just this female character with orange orangey red hair in kind of like a big barda kind of outfit with a motorcycle helmet and it just says bonus pinup by jack kirby and jim lee but they don't establish who this character is what this character is or what the story is it looks really really cool and i like i really want to know what it is,
1: but I have no idea what it is. Yeah, exactly. They just pulled pages out of Jack Kirby's sketchbook. I guarantee you. And then Jim Lee just said, "Ooh, I like that one. I, I, we should put that in here." I'm gonna, I'm gonna ink it. And everybody's like, "Okay." Even in issue two, there's the Once and Future Probe, but Probe looks nothing like the version that we see in the comic. You know, she's got like mm-hmm. this big metal headpiece, and she's got like a purple cape, but not a cloak. And the outfit, the bodysuit, and everything is very different. So yeah, I think they were just like hey jack kirby is jack kirby we we want to show off as much as we can so
0: a couple of things i wanted to point out in this book that i noticed there's a lot of like Advertisements for other stories or other characters. Did you notice there's a page about a character named Troll? Yes. So let, let me read this for you guys. It says says Troll. He's three foot four inches tall. He's two thousand years old, and he's looking for a good time. Big things come in small packages troll and then it says it's troll time partner and it's kind of like a cross between wolverine beast and like the All Father of the New Gods.
1: Yeah, he's. He, I always like th- think of him as like Wolverine and Emp from Wildcats. But yeah, this, that that's the creation of Jeff Matsuda that Rob Liefeld put out. I di- I haven't read the first issue, but I have Troll Two, not to be related with the terrible film that takes place in Nilbog. And it was <laughs> this one-shot comic where Bad Rock and Troll have to team up, and they're fighting these old Nazis because Troll he's been around. For for a long time, he fought World War Two. Hmm, like Wolverine. Interesting. Yeah.
0: He's two thousand years old, and the position in which they drew him, though he his fists are like fingers up or like knuckles up kind of thing, as if it was like Wolverine about ready to shoot his claws at. Him. It's a very much a Wolverine kind of pose. The hair looks like Wolverine. It's a really bad knockoff of Wolverine, in my opinion. <laughs> toward the very very back of the book the second to last page there's an ad for who are the new men find out in extreme prejudice
1: well yeah this is what I would be curious to know how far this series went because I feel like I've heard this day before but it says again you know the credit is to Jeff Matsuda Mm -hmm. coming out through extreme studios so yeah I'm very curious to know like did anybody love new men I'd I'd almost actually like to read this one because the team again seemed distinct, even if they're reminiscent uh, elsewhere. They'd actually, I would say his penciling style is much closer to Jim Lee. Yeah. than it is to rob liefeld kind of a mix of the two although yeah. the female anatomy on the female hero i don't know what's going on with the chest there yeah because it looks like like literally two headlights like put on you know that's that's a terrible term that people use <laughs> but it literally is in that shape and you're i like, was huh? I,
0: I was gonna use the term billiard balls is kind of what it looks like <laughs> like, but but it looks like, you know, they don't look attached.
1: They don't look like they're part of the body. They're just in no. front of the body.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't even know how the costume got over them or around them for that. <laughs> um, but it looks kind of like Cyclops, Jean Grey, Archangel, beast and ice man is basically what this this new men ensemble is just kind of funny
1: so that's what's in that first issue and michael i'll just tell you because that one like i say feels kind of pieced together i will say the second issue feels a lot i guess streamlined it feels like it's all part of one story but it's interesting because at the very end for some reason the sensei gives jinseng a mask and you think oh that's gonna be his look he's gonna wear a mask but then you know after the third page he's like my mask it ripped <laughs> i was hoping <laughs> to disguise my identity but now uh oh here comes old faithful again so literally they give it to him in the last issue and then it's gone first thing it's like why do it at all i don't understand and,
0: and that's the funny thing on the card that i have he's wearing the mask with a white ponytail coming out of the back
1: see that says ginseng that's yes. not ginseng because in the the second issue. What happens is they have to for some reason send Apocalypse in undercover dressed as Jinseng. Okay, so he puts on his clothes and then he puts on the ripped mask so now the mouth is showing and basically his hair is sticking out the back, the white ponytail, which Jinseng does not have. He has right. short black hair and then Probe, part of her power is this. Now hold still while I form a psionic screen over your face to complete the disguise. Incredible incredible he looks like me but you're like wait a minute why didn't she just do that all together why does he have to put on a mask at all some of the funny uh, comics logic but yeah. the craziest thing michael i have to tell you about the second issue so there is a character who shows up all of the sudden just in, uh, kind of out of nowhere as part of the team and they call him the professor but what he is is this creature who's got like his the bottom half of his legs are like blue and scaly with these fin wings on the side then his arms are green rocks that look exactly like the thing and then he's got fur that comes out from his shoulders and then on top he's a bald guy with long blonde hair on the bottom and then he's got a uh, this i don't even know what you call it kind of like feathers in the front that make him look like like one of the who's from the grinch it is bizarre and guess what his power is he can transform into a little girl named Susie. (laughs) okay all righty <laughs> just in case you were thinking they wouldn't ramp up the action in phantom force number two they did yeah so it's it's one of those things where it's kind of a mess at the same time i didn't think it was like terrible like i could follow it at least we've read worse stories in this yeah exactly show. there wasn't too much going on even though they were all new characters to me they were all distinct they yeah. all had a very recognizable voice the way they were written
0: yeah yeah no absolutely they definitely had a look you could tell who the characters were it wasn't like this hodgepodge of like identical looking characters that kind of blend together they're just blowing things up the whole time and that I was appreciative of very much so
1: there you go Phantom Force like I said it continued on with Genesis West not drawn by Kirby in any way but if you liked the characters and you liked the story you could follow along for a while I actually found their website at Genesis West their website was created in 1999 and there's been no updates since Instead, but it's still there.
0: So I want to ask you a question. One thing we don't really do after we've read some of these comics is kind of like give our overall rating. Do you want to give it like a a letter grade as we as we finish these books? Like how you would think that they, in, in your opinion,
1: we could do that. We can, we could can start doing that.
0: So like if I had to give Phantom Force number one a letter grade, I'd probably give it a B plus because. It is well drawn, the characters are definable, it's a little bit of a mess, but it it still has some sort of story to it, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, and I would be right there with you. I'd give it a B just based on the fact that it is a simplified, just classic storytelling, which, like we said, I mean, having read so many other 90s comics at this time where new characters are introduced and I can't keep track of them, I can't follow them, they're not catching my attention this one i could name all the characters in the book and i enjoyed reading them and i thought it was you know a good enough story that i'd be like yeah if i was picking this up in the 60s i'd be like oh this is wild and cool you know and reading it now it's like oh it's a fun throwback but again like even if it was just a kirby uh, you know if it was part of alan moore's 1963 tribute to 60s marvel comics and he was just like this is the team that i'm choosing you know to be like the fantastic four or like the justice league or whatever i'd be like you know what i can follow that I, I can see that this is working i'm getting a smile on my face i i don't regret the purchase of these comics
0: no i don't, i i'm glad you did i'm glad we looked at it you know it's it was cool to kind of get a feel for a jack kirby style like 90s book which is cool and you know i, I again i'm i'm happy we read this one there are other ones that i was like oh i should have really given that one a solid f but this one is, a, is I'm, I'm happy with our rating on this one but that is phantom force number one
1: and thank you so much for joining us on this episode next time around uh, we have a special guest who is joining us as we get into wizard issue number 22 but also make sure that you are prepared to experience the horror yes of our Halloween segment as part of the Retro Network Halloween special which will have come out just prior to this episode so if you want to go over to theretronetwork.com you can find the listing there or you could subscribe to their podcast feed but michael and i had a really fun discussion there about our top halloweeny characters i suppose you would call it no relation <laughs> to the uh adventures of pete and pete episode yeah uh pete and pete hardy the strongest man in the world anybody how come he never got a comic
0: oh man or or inspector 34 for the underwear <laughs> mr tasty
1: they could have created a whole super team of the universe yeah <laughs> all right but yeah so be sure to check us out online at wizards comics on twitter at wizards underscore comics on instagram and we have uh, more to come this month yes october is not over and i think we have more treats than tricks to bring your way but until next time keep your books back and forth